You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. I'll be sharing some bite-sized brain science, thought-provoking questions, and mind-bending ideas about how our brains work, change, learn, and adapt, and how we can use the knowledge emerging from the field of neuroscience to open up new possibilities and make the progress we want in all areas of our lives. Hey there, and welcome to the show. Tell me, do you believe in luck? To what extent do you believe in luck? How much of a role does it play in your success? If it does have a role, how much do you see yourself as being the creator of that luck? Maybe it's more a case of, eh, it can't do any harm, let's give it a go. Or maybe you dismiss it entirely, but you're still wondering why it's so appealing to other people. Well, if any of these is true, hang in there, because this might help. In this episode, I want to look at something that even the most rational minds seem to turn to from time to time, so we can ask a few big questions about how we act with regards to the concept of luck. Let's start a bit off-centre for this topic. Do you remember having a favourite stuffed animal or blanket when you were little? Do you remember how it made you feel? My daughter had one called George, a little white plush polar bear with wings. She loved George. Everything was right in her world when George was by her side. There wasn't really much logic to why George was the one, but out of all the stuffed animals, only George would do. Whether she was dozing off for the night or she'd scraped her knee, George was the one she wanted. These toys and blankets help kids feel extra safe and secure, hence the name security blanket, I guess. Just the introduction of these things to an otherwise seemingly inconsolable situation seems to calm things down. I find it such an interesting phenomenon. There are theories about why children attach to to these items, which are referred to as transitional objects. A paediatrician and psychoanalyst named Donald Woods Winnicott borrowed this term from his second wife, Claire Britton, and proposed that children took comfort from their teddy or blankie or whatever in the period where they're gradually spending more time away from their mother. There's a big chunk on early development that goes with this, which is fascinating, but that would take us way off track for today. So for now, we'll park that one with fond memories of our transitional objects brought to mind. And as you might have guessed, I'm not sure we grow out of this tendency as much as we might think we do. All through life, we use memory regularly to recreate emotions. This is why we keep photos of loved ones and souvenirs. Did you see Tom Hanks in Castaway? Do you remember the photo of his fiancée that kept him going? It provided him with much-needed feelings of love and connection when he was stranded on his desert island. We can change how we feel in any given moment by allowing ourselves to bask in the image, the memories and the emotions that flood our brain in the process. We can alter our own states. Moving in another direction, don't worry, I am going to tie these together soon. You might have heard of neuro-linguistic programming or NLP for short. NLP is a collection of models, techniques and strategies that practitioners use to help their clients better understand their thought processes and behaviours. It's commonly used to help people change behaviours or achieve goals. Anchoring is one of the techniques used by many NLP practitioners, including the likes of Tony Robbins. Anchoring creates an association between an internal response and a trigger, called an anchor, so that the response can be quickly recreated. Often the things that are anchored are what's known as resource states. Things that you'd like to be able to feel more of in certain situations. For example, confidence or patience or calm, much like our teddies and blankies that we talked about earlier, no? Say, for instance, you've got to give a speech. Public speaking is a notoriously terrifying prospect for many people. 
So they might want a way of being able to increase their confidence before they walk on stage. Arriving on stage with a tatty old blankie might not really convey the gravitas that we want, but we'd like the feelings of security all the same. So the terrified speaker might ask an NLP practitioner to help them anchor some confidence. The process will normally involve some category of exercise that recalls a time when the client had already experienced the state that they want to be able to tap into. So they may recall the confidence they felt on stage in their high school production of Oliver Twist. They'll be encouraged to remember how it felt to know that they were going on stage 100% certain of what they were going to say and do, and also how it felt to get all the applause and praise that followed the performance. This memory will be evoked as strongly as possible and then matched with a gesture, for example, perhaps something like touching a knuckle or twisting a piece of jewellery. So by working with this combination of memory, evoking emotion and physical gesture, the NLP coach taps into our old friend neuroplasticity and creates a new pattern for the client. Every time they perform that gesture, they call to mind those helpful emotions. Actually, now that I say it like that, it doesn't sound all that different to the Pavlovian response, does it? The dinner gong goes and the response is triggered. NLP for pets. I wonder if I've just invented a new field. Actually, this is the internet. It's probably already happened. Back to people, though. It's like when you start to feel happy or relaxed, or you might start to feel in a good mood when you start to plan a holiday. Just thinking about it can elevate our mood. Our minds don't really do a great job between distinguishing between responses that are real and the imagined versions of these things. NLP practitioners aren't the only ones who practice anchoring, though. What's occurred to me recently is that we naturally gravitate towards creating anchors for ourselves. And as always, these are neither positive or negative, save that we make them so. Think of the little rituals we create for ourselves. For many, they imbue a certain trinket or item of clothing with a certain ability to bestow luck. My lucky cap, my lucky charm, my lucky socks. You know the kind of thing. The sort of thing that the owner wants to have on them when they do that thing that could go either way. The job interview, the presentation, the big game. Or how about the fisherman who has a certain routine the night before his day on the water? Or what about the athlete with a warm-up routine that includes certain aspects that aren't exactly scientifically proven to improve performance? What's going on with all this stuff? The fisherman's routine is in no way going to affect the conditions or the presence of fish. And the athlete's routine also doesn't affect any external factors. So what is being changed? Well, mostly how we feel about the thing. When we feel prepared, we tend to feel more confident. When we have a prior experience of something having gone well when we performed a certain set of actions, we want to increase our chances of things going well this time. So we make sure we follow the same formula, whether or not it can actually have any effect on the outcome. There are no doubt other factors that play into how we create anchors for ourselves. And since the dawn of humanity, we've looked for favourable signs. We've sought out omens, fortune tellers, astrologers, anything that will give us an indication that luck is on our side. Even some of the most rational minds I know look for these signs. Sometimes it's in the form of recurring numbers or the repetition of a certain theme. So our worldview and beliefs also play into how we end up viewing and interpreting luck or the idea of fortune, be it good or bad. It's as though belief in luck and superstition seem to be hardwired into us at some level. And from an anthropological point of view, you might see our historical beliefs in lucky charms, talismans or spells and magic as purely an attempt to either explain what we did not understand or to protect ourselves from forces beyond our control. But what is luck? It's defined technically as success or failure apparently brought about by chance 
rather than through one's own actions. Some will tell you that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And others will tell you that the harder you work, the luckier you get. We have many things handed down to us that seem very abstract in their current form because they're quite often pretty far from our everyday life experience, but they probably started as very practical observations. Let's look at a few examples. Horseshoes are well known as a symbol for luck. And that seems to make no sense until you think back in time to when we were far more dependent on horses for transport. If one lost a shoe, it was expensive and time-consuming to get a new one made. But if you lost one on the way to market and found it again on the way home, well, hey, I bet that would have felt like a lucky day. And what would have been the chances of actually finding it again? So yeah, that probably was lucky. Or have you ever heard that it's unlucky to open an umbrella indoors? I, I, I think that's just common sense. I mean, you're pretty much bound to knock something down and break it. And that would probably be unlucky, right? The same goes for walking under ladders. That is just asking for trouble. You could quite easily be landed with anything from a tin of paint to a hammer on your head. And then, of course, there's the black cat crossing your path. Well, that could be because they're the stereotypical witches familiar. Or it could be because you're less likely to see them in the half-light they favour for hunting and trip over them when they cross your path. See what I mean? Lots of these things probably have pretty pragmatic roots. But like so many pieces of received wisdom or habitual ways of thinking, we don't really think them through anymore. We probably just do them because someone told us to. And the further things get from the source, the more we forget their original lesson. Now, we also have millennia of ways to coax and encourage luck to be on our side rather than against us. As I mentioned earlier, there are people who swear by their lucky charms, whether it be a lucky dime or a bracelet or a routine that they carry out. Why is that? What is it that makes otherwise rational and logical people believe in magic? And is it really magical thinking? Or is there something far more complicated and subtle but biological going on here? Let's go back to our friends in NLP for a minute. What are they doing? They're helping us build little memory-based marble runs for emotions that we want to be able to create in ourselves at given times, right? And this is very similar to the power that we give to our charms and trinkets. We associate them with a feeling or an outcome that we want to achieve, acing the test or sweeping our audience off their feet. We self-anchor the emotional state that we want to draw on into these trinkets. So how does this really work? And is there any evidence to suggest that it has basis in what we now know about the brain? For the purposes of what we're talking about here today, I'm going to focus on the positive aspects of this equation. Clearly, there are also negative applications, but like pretty much everything I've covered on this podcast, the thing itself is neutral, and it's our application or perspective that is either positive or negative, beneficial or damaging. There's no light without shadow, as they say. Everything has both a light side and a dark side. Let's go back to a scientist I mentioned back in episode one, Lisa Feldman Barrett. If you haven't heard that one, this is the same scientist who dropped the corker, our brains aren't for thinking on us. And she has also done work that suggests that our emotions are not responses to situations, but in fact predictions. I'll link her book again in the show notes because it's a really great read. Dr. Barrett th- talks about something that she calls the prediction loop. And by that, she's talking about the millisecond assessment of its existing knowledge base that the brain goes through in order to work out what it needs to do to make the best use of the resources in your body. Hence, the brain is not for thinking. It's for budgeting resources like glucose and water and so on in order to give us the best chance of staying safe, staying alive. And sometimes our brains overreact to things that feel threatening, like public speaking, as a kind of life or death situation. So our emotions do their dangdest to move us away from that heightened level of threat. 
And this can hold so many of us back from making progress in our lives and careers and businesses. I was listening to Chris Anderson, the head of the TED organization earlier, and he was talking about what he considered to be the tragedy that so many amazing and world-changing ideas will never see the light of day because people lack the confidence to speak about them. And we can take this back to the core emotional needs that we all have. As social animals, we fear rejection so much. We fear ridicule and failure and the consequences that might ensue if we stick our necks out. Again, these are things that make perfect sense in relation to our brain's function of keeping us safe. But in terms of moving from a state of fear or lack of confidence to courage and openness, then it keeps society as a whole stuck on a hamster wheel of competition and self-preservation. But it seems to me that many of us have tapped into a sort of hack for this brain trap. We seem to have an instinctive understanding that we can change our states, our emotional levels and our effectiveness. And I have to say, I just love this kind of inner dichotomy that we seem to have in the brain. In this instance, it's like our executive function and our unconscious mind are like a stereotype of an old married couple who know each other's habits so well that they modify and work around each other without even thinking about it. So when one part is worrying about something and seeing it as a big threat, the other one's going, there, there, this will help. Of course, the balance between them is different for everyone, and some of us seem to have a better ability to work these little hacks than others. It's a recipe that will probably never be written down because it's always going to be a sample of one for the research. We're all too unique in terms of our nature, our nurture, and of course, our neural networks. But let's set that aside for a moment and go back to the lucky charms. Do you have them, by the way? Or maybe it's a routine or a ritual that you like to follow? I'd love to know if you do this and if what I'm about to say resonates with you. It's my observation that we do these things or have these things for a good reason, although it's often one that we haven't consciously analysed. We do it because it elevates our emotional state to the place we want to be. When we talk about luck, when we invoke these charms to bring luck to us, are we really trying to create confidence? Is it possible that the security we feel in having this inanimate object that we imbue with meaning, is it possible that that increases our confidence? Everything worked out fine the last time I had my lucky dollar, you might be thinking on some level, and that reassures me that it'll be okay this time too. We bring ourselves closer to that sense of certainty that our brain craves, that feeling that it will be able to do its job of keeping us safe. And it's not necessarily just about lucky charms either. It can be the clothes we choose to wear. If we're trying to impress at work, we'll dress accordingly. If we're trying to relax and kick back at the weekends, well, a certain time might get a day off. But the power is not in the suit or the dice or the rabbit's foot. The power is between our ears. Isn't that weird? All this ability to change our perception and how we see the world is inside us all the time. And still, many of us somehow look for an external switch to fire it up. This is one of the reasons I love discovering more about neuroscience. We can use it to look at what we've been doing and start to understand ourselves a little more. We can start to understand how the positive associations we make between an object and an emotion help us to get back to that emotion when we need it. When we feel it, we can be it. And it's like Henry Ford famously said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So this is where making our own luck comes into play. We do use these external things and techniques like anchoring and so on to help us convert our feelings such as anxiety into similar but more beneficial ones like excitement. The two things are similar, but they're like flip sides of the same coin. One arouses fear and a desire to shrink away from a task or event, while the other helps us to come to it feeling positive and confident. And we can develop the skills to alter our states 
knowing what we know now about how the brain works. Or, of course, we may already, and possibly unwittingly, have created an anchor to do just that. Of course, even with the best control of our emotional responses and being able to generate helpful states, there are still things that are beyond our control. So what happens then? What happens when the luck of trinkets breaks down? Well, resilience comes in there, and it's also a skill that can be learned and improved, a mental muscle that we can work on. But that's something for another day, I think. Part of resilience, though, is where our locus of control is. Now, what is a locus of control? Well, it's basically whether we think that we have the power to do and change things in our lives, or if things are being done to us. If we feel as though things are out of our control, then we are less effective. But if our focus is on the external source of luck narrative, then we can also help ourselves by being prepared for a situation. And this takes back some of that control because we're acting to improve our position. So whether that's a business-related issue or a personal one, the more we know what we need to do and what we want to achieve, the more we're helping our brains to understand what's required of them. And the more we remove doubt, the easier things become. So am I suggesting that we all dump our external anchors and go cold turkey in the face of building confidence or whatever our desired emotional resources? Not at all. They are a means to an end, right? And if a routine or a charm or an anchor helps us to be more effective, then why would we deny ourselves that? But we can also, if we choose, realise that we don't need that object, that the control comes from inside, that we can take control of those thoughts and emotions and we can build resilience in a way that makes us independent of external trinkets or anchors. Imagine the possibilities that would come from doing that. That brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, I'd love to hear from you if it's helped, or if you have questions or comments. Links and more details are in the show notes, as always. Don't forget to hit subscribe for more bite-sized brain science, and if this was useful to you, then it would really help me out if you could leave a review on your platform so that somebody else might benefit too as my mom is forever telling her grandkids, sharing is caring. Okay, I'll catch you next time. Until then, enjoy a world full of possibilities. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips, and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.